You should come with us. New Orleans? New Orleans. We'll see where, where I'm at. In Maybe. your life? Well, just, you know. Married with children? I might be on tour. Or married with children. Yeah. We have yeah. some new viewers here. It's kind of cool. They're, they're, they're commenting, actually. Um, someone, Jason Cox, just asked if we, uh, if we made the, these croissants here. We, um, they've been in the freezer for a month. Yeah, truth be told. Truth be told. <laughs> so um, I just got back, and we haven't recorded a podcast in four weeks, almost exactly, because I was right. in Europe on right. tour with Periphery. So how was your week? I mean, four weeks. My, it was really interesting. I, in those four weeks, I think the, la- the first two weeks of those was finishing school, finishing the semester, finals, and a lot of things went down in school that were that were great. I was trying to get straight A's because I want to hold a, a pretty high GPA. I'm in school to be a dietitian. And when I'm finished, yep. Why do you want I was going to go into that. I know cuz you we talk about this a lot and I actually use a lot of the rhetoric that you would tell me about getting great grades or caring and not caring of that stuff with others who care so much about the 4.0 GPA. The idea is that when I finish school, I'm going to have to go get this dietetic internship and do nine months of work for free. You either pay for them to get into them or you get one of the, and they're very limited. I think in Maryland, there's maybe 30, 40 spots total for these internships. Um, I'm trying to hold a decent GPA to be competitive. That's fair. Right. Has nothing to do with I want straight A's because I feel like straight A's is what you have to have. Because I realize, and I think this is a really good lesson for people, you don't need to know everything about everything. When someone presents a subject to you, you should get out of it what you want and then figure out what you need to do for the class and move on. You don't have to know 100% or spend all of your time with that because it's going to take away from what you could be doing with another class or something else that's going to help you be more well-rounded and help you set yourself up for the future. When you leave school, you're not going to remember all this information. That test that you took that you got an F on won't fucking matter. So it's been good, though. And I had some issues. You know, I'm looking around, and I took this one final straight up. And all these motherfuckers are just opening up other tabs and looking up all the answers and doing all these crazy things. And it's taken them forever to take the test. And it took me like 20 minutes. And I was just, I walked out, and I was like, you know what? This sucks. I'm, I'm, kind, of, I'm kind of bummed. I'm going to get a B in this class, whereas all these other motherfuckers are going to get A's. Because they're cheating. And if, uh, give me an Eddie Guerrero quote. We lie, we cheat, we steal. No, like, what was the one, like, uh, if you're not cheating, you're not trying. Was that an Eddie Guerrero quote? No, it is. I think that was one. But, yeah, so it was, um, was kind of tough. But I finished, and I really enjoyed the material. And so I felt like I got a lot of good stuff out of it. But when I finished, I had a week, which I guess was about two weeks ago, of this like transitional period where I was super busy with school stuff and then it just slammed into a wall and I go, whoa. You know, and I think what I was lacking was discipline in having a good routine to bounce right from one thing that just abruptly stops to jump into something else. And that's something that I keep listening to Jocko Willing. Willing? Um, Jocko Willing. Yeah, on a, on a lot of podcasts. And it's, it's all about that discipline. You know, that's why he wakes up 4.30 in the morning. You see a picture on his, of, uh, on his uh, Instagram of his Timex watch, and boom, it's go time. And I think that's yep. great, but it's hard when you're doing something like school because it does abruptly start, it abruptly ends, and if you're not prepared for it, you hit this like heavy swing. And so for me, I felt like for a week, I hit this weird swing 
Um, and then it it took maybe a, almost a good, almost a whole week until I decided on a Friday night to just to go to hot yoga instead of going out with people. And then I felt like I hit a stride where then I started going hiking, doing yoga and reading a bit more and doing the things that I, I had said to myself, that's what I'm going to do on this, on this break between, you know, yeah. Well, it reminds me of what I'm going through right now in a way. I was thinking that as well. Because tour and home lifestyles are extremely different. Right. Um, But if you ever want help in getting used to that kind of transition, let me know because it's, it's something that I've gotten way more used to having toured for so many years now. And what's been really extremely helpful has been the fitness stuff has because I kept, I worked out every day on tour, especially show days. I said to myself, if, even if I take a week off when I get home, even if I don't want to do tons and tons and tons of stuff, I have to work out every day. That's why I was on you like white on rice immediately. Yeah, you were like, like, I flew in Sunday. What do you got Monday? Yeah. And we were back at it Tuesday. Yeah. And exactly. today. So, yeah. you know, a couple days. Yep. And I can see that the fitness, one, it's something consistent that you do on tour, but also at home. But also that it's just a practice that helps ground you in yourself. Absolutely. Well, and, and it's become a lifestyle thing now. I don't, I, I, I actually don't think I sleep well unless I get some kind of exercise every day. And it doesn't need to be like the workout we did today. Today, we, I thought we went pretty hard. Yesterday, we went re- really hard. Um, Matt hit a bench PR, everybody. PR alert, y'all. Yeah, I hit a bench PR. But it's, you know what? It was a really big, I mean, Matt bench, Zordon, you can attest this. You've tried to bench some weight before. Nothing crazy, but I put you on the bench and you're like, this is not really for me, I think. Shout out to Dried Mango. Um, You know, maybe like, maybe we put 135, which is kind of classic. The bar's 45, 245's on the side, 135. How much did I have? Uh, Maybe we put 100 or 135 pounds. You know, like the simple math based on the plates that you generally will have in a gym. Hell yeah, twice my body weight. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Matt, we got him yesterday. The, the highest we'd ever gone before is 205 pounds. Yesterday, we went 245 plates on each side. We got up to 225, and Matt hit two sets of six and then a set of eight. That's a lot. It's a lot. It is a lot. And what what I'm excited about most about that is one, we weren't trying to hit a PR. I wasn't it wasn't like, all right, let's go for this chest PR today or bench press PR. I hadn't worked out with weights for four weeks. Right. So what's really cool about the workouts that I've been doing every day on the tour, um, it's in it's obvious to me that it's helped keep my muscles active and strong. And to be honest, I think I even got stronger. Like I said to you, like I wanna keep working on planking positions and things like that so that my wrists, my arms, all of the joints that I need to support more weight with my bench press, like I want them to be really strong. So I want to keep doing that stuff. And that's all the kind of stuff that I was doing on the tour. And I think previously the problem that I had with lifting that much weight was all of the pressure on my joints and my wrists, specifically in my hands. Well, so, so that everybody knows, there, there are these things, these mechanisms, where if you don't want to go super low and come all the way down and touch your chest, people will do like board presses and they'll put these boards. And before, we would use some kind of contraption because we don't have boards here, but we would use something so that Matt wouldn't have to go all the way down. One, because it's that taxing on your shoulder. wrist. And two, because it was taxing on his, more like his deltoid area. Which is like you know around the ball, you know, like the the socket joint, the ball and socket joint mm-hmm. up, um, where a lot of people think it's their shoulder. And for Matt, 
I think it was easier. So what we did, we, we just set up um, two safety bars so that Matt came down. He didn't come all the way down to his chest, but he came down as low as what's comfortable for him. And I think what was good is two things. One, knowing yourself and knowing you can go, you're going to push it to where you know you're safe and you still feel comfortable because you're not doing this so that you can go compete and lift a 1,000 pounds. And two, what's good about it was that as we were progressing through the weight, we were going slow. We did a very normal warm-up to get, to get Matt ready for it. And when you felt something like your mid-back flared up a bit, we stretched it mm-hmm. to make sure you were ready for the push. And it was great. And when I put on the weight and I told you we're at, you know, we, I think we did 130, we did 45, 135, 165. And we got to 205. You're like, yeah, that felt good. Let's push it a little bit. And you have to know, and this is for anything, there are days that you dial it in and you feel great. Everything's firing off all cylinders and you go for it. There are days that you feel like shit, but you push through whatever you got to do, and then you just relax. Today and was that day. I felt. I mean, you, right. I was I was bitching and whining somewhat the whole time. We almost didn't do a workout. We almost didn't, but no. I, you know what I kept thinking about when I wanted to be like, eh, let's just let's just podcast instead. I kept thinking about you telling me that like in the past I would have these tendencies to just be like, eh, let's not do it. And I was like, fuck that. I'm not gonna let Justin make. Fun I had of this me. great post. Matt came over today. He complained. He told me his problems. Didn't ask me anything. It was one-sided. He told me whatever he wanted to tell me. Brought his clothes. Didn't change. Went home, made cheese steaks. Whatever. Yep. Sounds like a good day. Yeah. It was sick. I like got free <laughs> therapy and ate cheese steaks. <laughs> Actually, it's pretty funny. Carly, um, my fiance, would would be in the car a couple times that Matt called, and he would call me. Just to tell me something great or something that happened or he was, you know, something in business or he was talking to someone and they called and here's what happened. And then it'd be like, okay, bye. And Carly told me I used to do that to her where I would call her, tell her eight great things that happened, and then I got to go and I'd hang up. But you, <laughs> no, but you tell me when good things go on. But I do, at the I same, do. At the same time, and you can attest to I'm this. I'm fucking with you, but it's great. He is your brother. He is like the king of interviewing. He asks other people questions all the time. You do. You're so like I'll come over and be like, "What's going on? Where did you go? How are you? What kind of ketchup did you have on your burger? Was it Heinz or was it Hunt's? Did you eat mustard? What kind of mustard? Was it spicy? Was it honey?" You and that's good cuz you're really good on podcasts because of that. You're Thank really you. good at interviewing. Thank you. To be fair, I wouldn't direct those same questions to someone who I don't know as well who I know you. You go to Flavor Country. Someone said Flavor Town and Country yesterday. Maybe that's a podcast thing. Did you think of me? I said Matt goes to Flavor Country. He goes multiple times a day. But I would ask you questions like that because I know it's something that would spark and pique your interest and be like, ah, yes, I want to talk about those hamburgers that that I was supposed to be eating or the burger I just you know posted and someone's trying to tell me five guys is better than in and out and like you're in you just said it you said what did you say about burgers I said well someone just commented on a post that I made on Instagram and said that five guys is better and I'm just like vehement, vehemently disagreeing with him right but you said something to the tune of you said like I'm a not a burger connoisseur but you said like I'm you were you were like a little mad that someone's testing I'm a burger snob Okay, but you said something else, but it was great. I'm you not the only like, one. And so the thing would be that I would come to you and I would say, hey, I had a great burger. Or you would say, when I was in Germany, I had this amazing burger. And I would ask you what kind of cheese, what was the, what was the role like. But when I meet someone else, I generally will ask questions to them and do somewhat of a mock interview process. 
because I know it's easier for people oftentimes to just talk about themselves. And I'm genuinely interested. I'm trying to learn about someone. Tell me some shit about you. I, I already know myself. Well, and part of the reason why in those conversations I don't typically ask you things is because I know I'm going to see you and we're going to talk. But um, why don't you call me, though, Matt? We hang out all the time. You guys do burger night. True. Yeah. Speaking True. of burgers, that's one of the... We've talked about this before in the podcast. One of the best burgers in Baltimore. But yeah, I have to call him more because like, he helps me feel healthy and fit. And <laughs> you what fu- value do you extract from me? You're like a... Um, I'm the angel. You're the devil who takes him to get... You're like, you should get two burgers. They're only $5 each. No, right? man. We, we talk about a bunch of stuff. Like We're both single men. We talk about being single. We talk about like experiences that we've had with meeting people or talking to people. That's really good bro stuff to talk about. True. Bro stuff. Jordan um, would but never no, we talk that. about we talk about business, we talk about all sorts of things. It's a very valuable conversation. But your brother, it's like uh, you know, you're you're just you're in a good place. So I don't really worry about you. I'm not worried about Thank you. you. You got you got this awesome like beautiful fiance. You're you're building a house right now basically. Mm-hmm. You're Working as a fitness coach, you got this sick podcast. What do, what's <laughs> and you're just fucking worried about me over here. I'm worried about you a little bit. <laughs> I'm worried about you too. No, you know it was really nice. I came down today. I went upstairs. We were supposed to podcast earlier. I went upstairs and I came down. You guys were talking about setting up a presentation for something that Jordan's about to go do this this really cool opportunity, and he's trying to figure out the best way to maybe present to this group of people. And in that, he's talking, Matt brought up the idea of doing a PowerPoint presentation. And like Jordan, I would have thought the same thing. I haven't done a PowerPoint presentation. The only time I do them is in school. I don't feel super comfortable. I mean, I feel comfortable doing it, but it wouldn't be my go-to. It feels formal to me. Yeah, it wouldn't be the medium I would choose to go present an idea to people. I would just want to go talk to them, maybe have a printout, a one, a one sheet to give them. You know, so you can at a glance check out what we're about to go over, set it up, knock it down. But it was great. I came down and I hear the two of you guys riffing over this idea and how you can do it. And it's cool because I know that I talked to Jordan when he had the meeting first to go to the opportunity. And I was like, yeah, you and I and two of our other really good friends who know the material very well should all sit down and have a roundtable about this stuff. And then Matt comes in on a whole other angle. And it really it really just reiterates the whole idea of like, if you have a great circle around you, that's amazing. I like the idea of doing a, a pitch deck because you can show people your vision somehow, even if it's just through pictures, like we were talking about. Like when, when you go to do a pitch and the people don't know you, you want to establish your credibility first. If you're just like, hey, I'm Jordan, I do beat well seminars, and I, you know, which basically means I hit drums and drum circles with people. People are gonna have like a preconceived idea of what that looks like. They're gonna picture a bunch of fucking hippies, you know. However, if you're like, here's a picture of me doing four different kinds of beat well events, or here's me as a wrestler, here's me as band Jordan, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. It makes a big difference. And then if you can communicate your ideas with vision too. Or, or with with visuals too, then I, then that's really great. But there's all sorts of different ways to pitch, like. And I get it, and and I did obviously PowerPoint a lot in grad school, and what just drove me up the wall was where it was all just paragraphs and people just reading off of it. So if you're listening to this, take my advice. My strategy when I had to do a PowerPoint, 
a picture that was striking and made people feel something. And I gave myself a minimum of like five words a slide. And then just know your stuff and then use that as as just a cue to then go into your content. That's but, exactly right. And and I thought the idea of maybe just printing out stuff, giving it to everyone, and Matt, to your point, which was good and taken, in that if you're giving people material, they're going to be focused on it instead of you. Um, well, but, but that... Specifically, don't give people material to look at while you're doing the presentation. Give them a copy of the deck after the presentation. Right. Now, I like that. That's a great takeaway. But there is, there's an argument to that, too, because a lot of people like to have a copy of it so they can take notes on the page or on the slide that you're talking about. So it's it just depends on your audience. If you think the people that are going to be you know, receiving the pitch are going to want to really get a vibe for you, then I'm sure they'll have a notepad and I'm sure they'll take their own notes. But if it's the kind of thing where it is a little bit more formal maybe and you think that people might grill you on certain topics, then yeah, you can give them a printout. But you could also do a printout of an outline. So like what I've seen people do with pitches before is not even put the full slide on a piece of paper that they hand out, but basically like the general topic at the top and it Bullet says slide, slide nine and then they actually give um, lines or a box for, for whoever's you know paying attention to write in and take notes on. So it's like actually value that you're giving them. Yeah, you know? I mean my plan is just to be and with anything that I do I, I present a lot or facilitate a lot to groups of people so it's how can I be most engaging to capture the attention of my audience. To your point know your audience. This isn't something that I don't think we've discussed uh on this podcast yet, and it's something that I've always been very mindful of in the sense that, yeah, the content that I share can sometimes be similar, but I always have to know who my audience is. I need to know whether it's struggles they have and then how I can help solve them. Um, and even with the Beatwell stuff, it always looks like a drum circle format, and a lot of the things, exercises, metaphors, content that I share a lot of it can be similar, but sometimes it's how do I change my language to address this audience? Sometimes it's how do I dress to fully engage with this audience? So I'm gonna dress a bit differently in a very corporate executive boardroom setting than I will if I'm gonna go and do it with three-year-olds in a preschool. Absolutely, at the same time, I, and I've had experience with this when I was doing a lot of pitching for Band Happy, because mm -hmm. I, I had to raise a bunch of fucking money it was what is band happy so people know band people happy know. band happy was an um an online music lesson and education platform that i started a bunch of years back that i don't currently work on anymore but when i started the company i had to raise money we we raised money from grants we raised money from private investors. We raised money from government funding. Um, so you I needed I've, capital to do the I, work. And I've been through different kinds of pitches. I've been I've done pitches where I walk into someone's home and they're sitting on their couch watching TV and it's super casual. I've done pitches where uh, I walk into like an actual government building and everybody there is wearing suits and it's super formal. I got to wait in the lobby, then I got to go sit down. And did you get dressed up for that stuff? I would wear reasonably dressed up stuff. Like I'd wear a button down shirt and nice shoes, but, and I would, you know, I'd take care of it. But at the same time, I've done pitches where like there was one pitch in particular. Um, we went, we, we rented out the, a Ruth's Chris ballroom one time and we invited like 20 or 30 investors, like local friends and family, 
you know, for the most people part. But, but people that were qualified and, and quote unquote sophisticated investor types sure. who had made plenty of investments who were uh, qualified enough right. to do it. So um, my the big point that I wanted to make there was like, okay, yeah, we are at Roost Chris. Yeah, a lot of these guys and, and, and women that are coming are going to be dressed up and maybe they're going to wear jackets or suits or whatever. I was pitching a music lesson platform and I have to prove my credibility as a musician. So I made a point to be myself and I just let the tattoos hang out and wore the hat and, you know, just kind of even use the the language. So I knew you were going to go there. Yeah. And the point is it still has to be authentic, right? Now we wear different masks in our life and it helps us be most effective dependent on our goals. That doesn't mean that, and by mask, I mean sometimes the language we use, sometimes how we dress, but uh, it doesn't mean that we're coming from a place that isn't authentic, right? So I think strengths that all of us have is that we probably can feel just as comfortable when we're around a bunch of little kids as we can be with uh, businessmen and women in suits as we could be at a hardcore show or a hip-hop show or at an art show. Um, But the context is key, and the audience, obviously, when we're trying to engage with them, is key. And I think we can kind of shift in how we present ourselves dependent on our goals in the audience, but that doesn't mean that um, I'm going to go to uh, some punk rock show, so I'm going to go like put the lip ring back in and uh, like get some tattoos of Operation Ivy or whatever. Right. I, sure. I actually really enjoy that uh, Jordan often, you oftentimes co- will come to me when you go and do these things and you'll ask me, what do you think of this outfit? What should I wear with this? What do you think of that? And I just kept driving the point forward because even you talked about early on trying to be something that maybe you weren't because you had to put on a certain mask thinking that this is what I'm supposed to be representing or this is how I get by and how people start to believe in the idea of these drum circles. As I say, I'm a psychotherapist and I'm doing these drum circles and this is the this is how I'm supposed to take this is what I'm supposed to do to fit into this mold. Mm-hmm. And then eventually you started to evolve over time and I just kept saying you were going to do a, the keynote speech, speech, right? A keynote speech at a, what was it? Psychology conference. Psychology conference. And I just kept saying, everyone's going to be wearing X. You need to wear Z, which is you. And now, granted, everyone there was wearing the full suit. And I presented the year before. And I did the black dress shirt untucked with jeans and boots. So still, baby steps. Relative to everyone else, right. I was hyper casual right. and stood out in that sense. Even in the language that I use, yeah, I'll cuss if it's appropriate and not gratuitous. So even that, it stands out. Um, but it's still, it's it's not doing it just to do it. It's how can I be most effective? Part of for me being effective is being memorable and being myself. And feeling comfortable. This year I did the keynote for the whole conference and I wore a t-shirt and jeans and boots and it felt good. And but the, but the key thing is that I know my shit and I know that I'm going to add tremendous value to everyone there. So any judgments that I may get up front based on my lack of professionalism in my attire, I know that I'm going to overcome that. 
And that's really important. That's, I mean, I think that's the big takeaway is that if people are going to judge you based on something externally that has nothing to do with your content or the character or the value that you're adding, well, then who the fuck cares? Exactly. You know, it's for somebody else, not for you to worry about. But to the, to the same, to go back to the same point, though, of what you wore, it wasn't like you showed up with some disheveled, distressed, tattered looking, whatever. You still wore, which for me as a guy who really likes fashion, it's easy for a guy to get dressed up for anything if you wear a neutral color, black, gray, navy, white, plain shirt, a nice pair of jeans, which you wore, and a nice pair of shoes, which you wore some nice boots. And it's very simple. I was clean. You can be very effective being a minimalist. As a guy, as a girl, it sucks. It's like, I can wear this same black shirt every fucking day, and a girl wears one thing, and then it's almost like she's supposed to, she's expected to wear something else the next day, and the next day, and the next day. She couldn't show up and keep wearing the same thing over and over again. And I've had conversations with people that were going off to have these huge speaking engagements in front of thousands of people, and they're like, you know, oh, I ordered a dress for it, and the dress didn't come in, or I ordered a thing, it didn't fit, I had to go back to something else, I've worn that before in public, and people have seen it, and there's, you know, there's a stigma to that, which is, which sucks, it's easy as a guy, but you still, you showed up, you were you, you were comfortable, knocked it out of the park, it's great. And I knew my audience. You knew your audience. So I knew that I was speaking to psychology professionals, I still did my stuff, but I was able to tweak it and kind of deliver it through the lens of what do psychology professionals value most? How can I help them? And in what ways can I deliver my content that it will be most resonant with them? Now to circle back, when Matt brought up the idea of pictures and you brought up the idea of people in it, like students in PowerPoint presenting a certain way, that's my argument as well. This is my second time through college. And so it's like, I know that you should be, you should know your material. Most important above anything else, how you dress, how you act, whatever you do, you have to know your material. Have to know, you can know your audience or not, but you got to know the material you're at least presenting. The last presentation I gave, everybody had to pick a, um, a scientific journal and present the journal. It's not hard to do. You got to actually read the fucking journal and do something with it. And you would, somebody would go up there, they would hand you the abstract initially, which is a summarization of the journal, and they would just read their slides to you and you would do other things for 20 minutes while they read to you. It's awful, you know, you're so disengaged. I made a point, because in PowerPoint you can use, and this is a tool for you and for anybody else who may wanna go do this, there's a little section called slide notes. You can take all the things that you wanna say, rehearse, practice before you go out there or to have cues for yourself Instead of just the one, and I had bullet points, like there's, like you should, and you should know your, your material, and at the bottom, you can have all of your slide notes. Now, this was one of those times when I said, well, I could learn all this stuff, or I could just do what I need to do, and I didn't really care that much, and the, all of the professors do the same thing. They read full sentences from the slide, and sometimes they'll expand or extrapolate on these ideas. But for the most part, they just read whatever's up there. It's lazy. It's so lazy. And they even, they get the slides from the, the whoever makes the book. It's awful. So you, you're like, I don't have to come to this. I can go read the book and, or just study the slides somewhere else. But you can always show up and do other work and just at least get credit for being there. But I went up and I did whatever I needed to do. What I really liked about what Matt said, which I think could be the best thing for you, is to show pictures. Because when I started thinking about what he was saying, some pictures that go through my mind of what you could present of like first youth champion, 
you know, as, as a wrestler when you're younger and all these other things, you can present these really... And this is a meeting with the pro wrestling company, just so people know, and that's why it's, like... Super awesome. I'm going to, like, show a picture of that. Or even a clip. But whatever it is, the great thing about that is that the whole idea of, like, a picture's worth a thousand words. You already... You're going to know the material because we've already decided that over the next couple of weeks while you're, pre- while you're prepping... We're going to get a small group together, and we're going to practice, and we may even do a mock interview using the podcast stuff, and then you can listen back, and you can listen to what you were saying or even just record what you want to say a bit so you already know what it sounds like, and it's great. It's just using all the tools that you have. Well, and to Jordan's credit, he actually played me an audio clip today of him in the car rehearsing how he's going to present his portion of it where he's presenting who he is. You know, He's explaining his background and so forth, so... That's good. You should. The more you practice and the more you get used to the, the flow, the better. And, I mean, you do a lot of presenting, so you know this already, but it's so much better to speak slowly and clearly and project mm-hmm. than it is to make people struggle. And it's, uh, you know, it, it seems obvious, but so many people get nervous when they present. And, I, again, I know this it's is the com- It's confidence in knowing your material, for sure. And, and everyone's, not everyone is comfortable with that. No, they're not. And... That's actually a, a, a big thing that I've that I get asked about a lot of times is you know hey uh, I know this is a drum lesson but I'm in college and I have to present you seem really good at presenting in front of an audience what do I do and that's a that's a big fear for a lot of people obviously but I'm curious I mean have you ever experienced in your life um, any nervousness with with presenting or pitching and if so how do you guys rationalize that? It's rare that I've had to pitch, and but when I do pitch, it's beatwell stuff. Typically, when I present, it's beatwell stuff, and I know my content so well. Right. What's coming up is different in that it's a lot of ideas and thoughts and suggestions that I've really come up with more acutely in the past couple weeks, and that I will be formulating over the next couple weeks. And one of the reasons why it's going to be so important for me to rehearse it is so I know the material at least to some degree as well as I know my Beatwell stuff. Because the more that I know my, my material, the more uh, attention I'll able to place on the people that I'm there to persuade and actually be able to read the room. If I know them with Beatwell, I know my shit so well. So I can put most of my energy on the room. I can read the room. I can see what's resonating or not. I can see what they need. And then I can really tailor it again, knowing the audience. And I can make sure that my content is most effective to the audience. That's, right. that's, a, that's one great tool that people can use, which is really just preparation and knowing yourself. It's funny, like, when I go do clinics, unless, uh, unless I've really rehearsed before the first one, the first one is typically a little bit more loose and I kind of struggle and I'm a little bit more self-conscious through it because of that reason. I'm not able to focus on the audience as much if I'm not prepared and therefore I don't really present as well and entertain as well and keep people's attention as well. But once I do the first one, the rest of them are great because it's not about the content. The content just is like muscle memory. It's about reading the room and kind of going with it, which is what I think most really good comedians, for example, are, are really good at, or like really great speakers, you know? Will you let the group, the first group, know like, 
this is my first one back. Here's what's going to, or, or is it, do you kind of try to shell that and say, you know, I got this and just kind of roll with the punches? Oh, I'm really honest. Right. I mean, I, like the, well uh, it's be. funny. I'm thinking about one right now that um, when I did a clinic tour in the fall of last year, right before wintertime, I think it was in September, um, the first stop was in Germany and I had like flown in and didn't get any sleep and went right to the clinic. So I was a little fried as is, but yeah, I was really honest with the audience. I was like, look guys, sorry, like I'm tired but we're going to have a great time, and it ended up being great. It was awesome. I'll say with the Beatwell stuff, since I know the content so well, I actually prefer to be very loose. So I remember the first time outside of grad school that I, like, quote, presented, and I was invited by a professor to come to a university in D.C. and share with uh, her maybe 30 uh, graduate students in a psychology class. And I had, like, two pages all written out of bullet point, bullet point, bullet point. And I was literally like going through it and I felt such a little connection to the audience. And that was a huge uh, learning experience for me and that I need to do something different. So the next time I was able to present, I was much more prepared. And now that I've been doing it for years, since I know this stuff, I actually like not preparing in a way. So for instance, I did this keynote of the conference and I really did not have a plan. Now, I think of it like a band with a set list. I usually know what song is best as an opener. I know what song is best as a closer. But in between, I have a very loose outline. But I have this confidence and trust in myself now to really just read the room and trust my intuition of what's going to work best. The only thing, nothing's written down. The only thing I rehearsed was a brand new story that I told. And the way that I do these is everyone has a drum or percussion instrument. I'll tell a story about one of my prior experiences doing it with the group, but then my audience in the room will become those clients from the prior experience. So it's experiential learning in the truest form. Mm -hmm. And just on the drive there that morning, in my mind, I rehearsed how I was gonna tell that story. And that was pretty much the, uh, the extent of me preparing for it. Um, but at the same time, I've been preparing for five years for that one gig. Right. Preparation is, is really everything with that kind of stuff, especially if you want to feel comfortable. The other thing, too, though, that a lot of people run into is the anxiety and the nervousness of being in front of an audience. I mean, it's a, it's a huge fear for a lot of people. And I've, I've been lucky enough to actually talk to a couple of experts in this field in particular, like the psychology behind um, stage fright in particular. And... The, the general consensus is you have to, and it's kind of, it's funny, it's, it's like relative to a lot of things we talk about and how we view life. You know, you're going to run into anxiety everywhere in life, but you have to look at the situation and say that you're excited, not anxious. And physiologically, it's the same. It is. It, it absolutely is. And it's just how you sort of rationalize it in your mind. It's, you know, it's like someone who, tells themselves, I don't feel well, I'm sick, I'm weak, I'm this, I'm that, then yeah, that's how you're going to be. But if you really train that muscle in your brain to always say, no, I'm good. I'm going I'm, to, I'm, I got the situation. I'm excited. This is a great opportunity. I get to do this instead of, oh, I have, I have to, to do, do this. this. Yeah. When I start feeling that fear, my heart's racing, I have to pee every 30 seconds, I'm able to change the narrative within me to say to myself, this is just a physiological response 
my body preparing me that something important is about to happen, so it's something that I care about. And then I just turn to gratitude in the sense that because my body it has the wisdom to react this way, to prepare me for something important, I'm about to do something um, of value, and I feel alive. And then in that moment, I just have gratitude for being able to feel fully alive in that moment. Mm -hmm. And that helps me. Do you remember in middle school having to do the oratories? Yes. The, or those orations? Yes. I think that was great because that kind of threw us to the wolves. So starting in fifth grade, I think you went in sixth grade. I mean, we were young, 11, 12. I did it for four years. You had to pick a piece. It had to be a certain length. You had to memorize the entire thing. You had someone who could cue you if you were fumbling your words. But you had to memorize the whole thing and get in front, stand up in front of 20, 30 people and recite. It's really hard to do it. But I think that definitely will be the initial stages that will then be able to set you up for when you go and do that later in life. You've already have, you already have experience, even if that was the only time you got experience. But for me, it was always it was always a really tough thing. But I remember in high school reading, and maybe I was taking psychology, and I was taking speech class where you had to do speeches all the time. And I learned about the idea that when you're feeling that anxiety, you feel the butterflies in your stomach, you can take it how you want, but you can take it in the sense of, oh, this means I give a shit and I'm ready, and I got this. And I remember co consistency and repetition was key. As long as I kept doing it, and I kept repeating it and staying consistent, that day in and day out, I'm going to be doing a new thing. I'm going to go present this new story, whether it was a poem or it was someone's piece of work, whatever it was. The more I did it, the better I felt. And it was great. I would keep feeling those same physiological feelings, whatever they were. And then as soon as I said the first word, it all goes away. It literally just falls off you. You know, it sinks to the bottom and just dissipates. And it was awesome. And I remember then using that same wisdom later in life when I was, um, I became a, a trampoline instructor at Sky Zone, one of those trampoline parks. And literally there was no protocol to be an instructor for these things. And I showed up first class, maybe there was five people. And by the end, we were bringing 20 people each week, you know, tons of people. And because there wasn't really a protocol for it, I was like, okay, well, I'm going to go do the research. I'm going to do the work, figure out what works. I'm going to go in. And I went in tons of days on my own and practiced and thought about the routine, what works, what doesn't work. And then you have to be okay with variable change of, all right, all these people showed up. They have this whole set of these ailments or these body types, and they're not comfortable, whatever it was. And you had to go with the flow. You had to, read, you had to really read the audience and adapt on the fly. And so sometimes you have this great game plan, and you got to call an audible and change the whole entire thing. And it was great because it gave me all these different looks that then when I went and did teaching seminars, classes in other fields, similarly related, but different and with totally different levels fitness-wise, it was fine. I would just study and know as much as I could so that I was as prepared as I could be, and then I just had to throw down and trust in all of the work that I put in prior to. So to kind of go back to the performance aspect of it, and there's actually uh, a term for the kind of stress that is considered good, it's eustress. So EU is the prefix. But Matt, what's the most 
of that eustress that you felt for a periphery show? It would it'll be random. It it's mainly when the show is delayed for some reason because the you know the stage is running slow or something like that, or if I'm just antsy for I don't know. I mean I can't pinpoint one in particular. Um, there, there's not like shows with tons of people that that bugs me out versus shows with less people that bugs me out. I don't know. It just it just comes and goes. What about more high profile performances? No, I mean, for high-profile performances, I feel like I'm even more focused because there's no choice but to just crush it. Like, when I had to do that, um, the Doom performance at the Game Awards. Video like, Game Awards. Yeah, at the Video Game BGAs. Awards. I had no, I had no choice. Thanks this for clarifying, Justin. I thought it was the Board Game Awards. <laughs> no, I, I want to make sure, you know, hey, look, some people wouldn't know about this, but I, I, I watched the live stream. We talked about it before you went to it, but you only get one shot at that. Exactly, that's the thing. It's a live you know, broadcasted show, it was going to millions of people, and I couldn't fuck up. How period. much rehearsal did you have with them? Uh, I found out about the gig a week before. I learned the music that week. We rehearsed the day before. We probably played through the performance like eight, nine times, something like that. Where did you rehearse? So it took place in Los Angeles. The performance was at the Microsoft Theater, and then the rehearsal was at, uh, not SIR, um, I forget the rehearsal spot off the top of my head, but it was a really nice, huge rehearsal room. Um, we had a sound engineer there. The kit was all set up. Everything was set up, so I just came in, and we just played, and it was great. It was, we, knew we, would, we knew we could crush it. You know, we, we did it enough times. We were confident enough. The two guys that I, that I was lucky enough to perform with are both kind of legendary in the video game music world. So they're super pro. They had their shit down. Do they perform often? Because the guitar player for no vocals was one of the most engaging performers I've seen. He was like a lead singer running around on stage. Uh, yeah, that's Mick Gordon. No, he, I mean, at this point, he's not performing. He used to be in bands back in the day. Um, but no, I mean, he's just a very, very, uh, very busy video game composer, you know? And he's a great musician. He can play every kind of style there is and... He's a really, really great dude. And then Sasha, uh, who was doing a lot of the sampling and the keyboards and stuff like that, I mean, he's legendary because I believe he wrote some music for Quake 2, I think, and um, has just had a very, very good career in the, in the music gaming world as well. So I went into it knowing that I was working with pros. I went into it knowing that there was no chance of failure. I went into it knowing that like I needed to crush it. So I just pumped myself up and it was good. And it was fun. I felt good about that scenario because I had been on big stages before. I'd played in front of a lot more people in a room before. And when I walked in, there was nothing I hadn't seen. It felt very comfortable. And I have to give a lot of credit to Periphery for that, for, you know, all the shows preparing me for that kind of scenario. But it was really fun to be there rather than nerve-wracking. But, like, I don't know, on this tour we played, I don't know, maybe, let's just say Paris for some reason. I was anxious. And, you know, it's funny. I, Paris was a rough show for me. Where did you play in Paris? Uh, I can't even remember the venue. I was going to say, is that anywhere near, we talked about this before, the Bataclan? No, it was not, to my knowledge. But um, I don't want to like I don't want to turn the conversation immediately into something bad, but that was so, if anybody listened to episode eight, 
then you guys know that this tour in Europe was a very potentially challenging tour for me personally because of some things that had happened or something in particular that had happened on my last tour in Europe where my my dog passed away when I was on tour and it was it was a lot. Start um, with you we did a podcast I think the day be- we did episode 8 the day before you were leaving. Mm-hmm. You left on that Sunday. Yeah. So Sunday what were you feeling? And this kind of ties in the same idea of what we were talking about before of wasn't like you, you had just come off of a tour you did 3 weeks in the US. You had a week break, but then you were going right back to playing shows. So it wasn't like this long layoff, and it was this first one where you kind of take it light, and you're like, you know, you'll feel out the first one. But you're kind of just getting right back into it. I but you had all of this other stuff you were dealing with. So yeah. what was it like leaving, getting there? What were the first emotions you were feeling? It's always way worse than it really is. You know, when the, the trepidation is is way worse than the reality. You know, once I met up with Misha and we got to the airport and we got on the plane and we're all hanging out and we get there and we get on the bus. It's like, yeah, it's great. You know, it's like summer camp. Everybody's together again. We were lucky enough to have um, Mira, who's our driver for this tour as well. She's amazing. She's like the best tour mom ever. Um, She's a good friend of ours and, you know, it was great to see her. So, I mean, it situationally, everything was fine. It was just my own personal internal feelings about, what had happened before and, and being reminded of it on a daily basis because of so many similarities. Like the bus that I was on is, was the exact same bus, basically. It was a different, it's different bus, but same exact model, same layout, same color, same everything, same driver. I was in the same exact bunk that I was in before where I had a fucking breakdown after my dog died. Um, Did it, you bring anything with you to help you get through any of these times? Anything that you bring specifically or anything that you did? Did you do anything differently for this tour? Uh, the only thing that was different on this tour was the consistency of the fitness stuff and the workouts every day. That was great for a lot of reasons. It, <clears throat> out of everybody, I think, the people who worked out didn't get sick at all. Like, wow. and, and, the, and a lot of people did get sick on the tour. Um, so that was a huge thing. But it was also, I knew, I know that the exercise is great for me mentally. If I don't do it, I feel like shit. And if I do do it, I feel better than I would if I was just naturally having a happy day for, for whatever reason. You know, it, it really elevates all of those positive feelings when you, when you get to exercise, even just for a little bit. But that part was amazing because we ended up doing group fitness circles like every day between me and Mira, our driver, um, and a bunch of people from the other bands and from my band, we would get in circles. Uh, and You'll see pictures of it. I think I shared a couple on my Instagram already, but um, we would work out together every day. It was like a big support group of like people walking around being like, hey, when are we working out? What time is it? And I ended up being the, the leader the of coach. it somehow. coach. I loved it because I heard, especially you did some battle ropes. Or was it this tour? Or the, uh, no, it was the last <laughs> that was you did the battle last ropes. Tour. But it was great. I mean, I could... I could hear everything the way that I coach you. Mm-hmm. You're doing the exact same things with them, and, and I was loving it. I was like, oh, this is so great. And it's it's working, and you're physically and mentally feeling better, Yeah, which is great because yeah. we knew this was going to be an interesting tour for you. Well, and the shows were good, too. Um, overall, I mean, everything was fine. I even there were, there were moments where I had to stop and say to myself, like, should I be feeling something? Should I be upset? Um, and I wasn't really feeling that way. There was, there was a couple things that happened on the tour that really, uh, 
brought back a lot of heavy feelings and you know I kind of had to go take a couple minutes for myself one of those things my mom just sends me a picture of me and Charlie my my dog who passed away right and it's a picture of him kissing me which I posted on my Instagram recently and she sends it to me and it's like mom right like you know where I am and she's talking about how much she misses him and all this stuff and it's like it just it brought it all back um, Do you have a conversation with her saying that maybe wasn't the best time to show you that it doesn't serve you? It is what it is. You know, it's funny she's done that before too. On that, on that, um, the last one on the European clinic tour that I was talking about that I did in September. The first day, she sends me this picture of Charlie, and it was like, "Why are you doing that?" She's <laughs> like, "Oh, I found it on my phone. I miss him too." But the deeper thing is that you probably have to go and have, go have a pro, you know nice conversation. Take her to dinner. Sit her down and say, "Mom, we need to work I on." I don't mind though, honestly. The delivery of what you send me, this is not, <clears throat> this is not working out. You but can, uh, you can break up with her. But no, look, I don't mind. And I, and I, as I said on in episode eight, I mean, I was maybe looking for some kind of closure with it since I wasn't home when he passed away. Um, so the more I feel things about that, the more I do see things like that that are forced in front of my face, the better. Because in reality, yeah, when I scroll through my phone and I look at my pictures, I, I see pictures of him every day. He's He is the home screen on my phone now. But it's different when you don't expect it. Like, when I go and scroll through my phone, it's like, yeah, I, I know I'm going to see it. And I'm not really even looking at those pictures. But when I do look at the pictures or when I watch a video, it brings back a lot of feelings. And it definitely... It definitely hits hard. And I like that because it it's good. It's grieving, you know. But I didn't really get a chance to feel bad, and nor did I want to. And part of that was because I was around so many great people. My band, um, The Contortionist, who was the other band that we were sharing our bus with. So all the traveling we did when we were on the ferry. Um, so for those that, that didn't listen to the last podcast, when I was in Europe on the last tour, my dog got sick and ended up passing away while I was on this overnight ferry from Finland to Sweden. And we had to take that same ferry on this tour. And I was very, very nervous about how I would feel. But I felt fine because, again, I was around great people. You know, everybody was hanging out. Everybody was talking. Um, I recorded a podcast with my good buddy, Bill Oberander, and some of the guys from The Contortionist. So I kept busy, and it was just a different experience. It wasn't the same thing. And thankfully, Tyson, my dog now, was totally cool. Who is laying right now between my feet. Yeah, he is. He's totally <laughs> asleep, too. He's keeping my feet warm. But um, the crazy thing, the sad thing that happened, and it was in Paris was my dad's dog had to be put down that day when I was in Paris. And there's a couple things about this that were a little shitty and a little, also a little bit crazy. So her name was Gia. Gia was the same breed of dog that my dog Charlie was. And when I got Charlie, we had him, or had him by myself for a few years. And then when I moved back from Pennsylvania... Um, when I, I was in a band at the time when I got Charlie that was in Pennsylvania, I moved home to Baltimore. You lived in Pennsylvania? I don't know. For a little bit. All. I'll tell you guys all about it some other time. But Where did you live in Pennsylvania? I'll tell you about it some other time. Okay. We actually talk about it on, on Bill's podcast. So, all right. I'll have to so anyway, um, but when I moved back, 
I ended up moving with my dad for a little bit, and I got him a dog. I got him Gia, mm. and um, when she she we flew her in from where she was when she arrived i was the one to pick her up i pulled her out of her crate i held her i took her home in the car she was like my dog too and she really was like charlie's sister you know he raised her with me and we lived together for years and i would babysit her and i would watch her and i would take her with me everywhere i would go so she was like my dog and i just couldn't believe that it was happening again you know, in, in a different way, and although she was a different dog and there was different cir- circumstances, it was just, that really brought everything back. You know, getting the call from my dad, hey, Gia's not doing well, she can't walk, her legs finally gave out, I, we can't, she has no quality of life, we can't do this anymore. Man, what a terrible coincidence. That was rough, but so... Are you feeling the same way you're feeling when we talked about it on episode eight, you're like, man, I haven't been back since... You go again and something else happens. Are you feeling, is there any kind of feeling that's like, you know, super negative of like, I don't really want to do another European tour because. No, 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 You no, seemed no. in much better spirits regardless of the, the situations that were going on. You're like, um, I'll be okay. You know, it seemed like you were still trying to just hang in there and the, you were still the, enjoying yourself. The reality is. I'm going to do what I have to do for my life, for my passion, for my job. And that means I have to travel. And the reality of it is that shit's going to happen when I'm home and when I'm not home. And I can't control it. So it may be tragic and it may be horrible and it may not be the ideal place to deal with it, but I don't really have a choice. And I just have to roll with it and expect in some sort of morbid, sad way that things like this will happen. I was, you know, I kept in touch with my ex throughout the tour and was checking on Tyson, like, hey, is he alive? And I, I, I'm not even being funny or sarcastic. I was being like, you know, I wanted to know, is he okay? Is he healthy? Part of me wouldn't have been surprised if she was like, actually, something's wrong. And funny enough, the day I get home yep. from this tour, I got home on Sunday. That night, after I picked Tyson up, he wakes me up in the middle of the night, goes outside, and he's peeing blood, like horrendously pissing blood which I've never seen before, he ends up having a a urinary tract infection. And it just perfectly lined up with me getting home because it wasn't happening before I was home. So whatever. The luck I have with these dogs is crazy. But what I was going to say, too, that was a really strange coincidence is the night before the Paris show, we played in London. And uh, a very, very good friend to the band and a very big supporter uh, her name is Lena Caspers. She is, Lena's another mom who has taken care of us before. When we were in Japan, she met us there. She's uh, part Japanese. She was our guide. She's, she was our translator. She's great. She's a, she actually runs the Periphery uh, Japan fan page for us. She's great. But she came out to the show, and she brought me a gift. And I don't have it with me now, but we can post a picture of it. She brought me a gift. It was a mug with a picture of Charlie and Gia on it together. That's and sweet. it's very sweet. Yeah, and that's awesome. That's pretty amazing. And her reasoning was that she wanted me to have she wanted me to have my dogs with me on tour. You know, and that was really sweet. But what we didn't know was that the very next day that Gia would would die. And now I have this mug with the two of them on it in my bag. And I pull it out and I'm looking at it and I just like lost it. And it was awful and then the show was was a little bit delayed and that night i was just super anxious about playing 
I was, to be honest, I feel bad because I probably just couldn't give my all. I was emotionally drained from the day. My dad was really upset. I mean, understandably so. He, this dog was his child. You know, he lived with her and her alone. He, my dad lives alone now. It doesn't have a dog with him. So it was really heavy on him. And I'm dealing with it, you know, while I'm playing a show in front of an amazing crowd. But it was just this conflicting thing of like, look at what's in front of you. Compartmentalize. Come on. And this is what I'm saying to myself. Like, play the show. Hustle, hustle, hustle. But when something like that happens, that means that much to me, it's just, it's hard. And, you know, normally I would try to like, let it out through the music, but it was just too soon. Mm -hmm. When Charlie passed away, he passed away on a day off. And for whatever reason, 24 hours of dealing with it without being able to, without having to play a show was much better than hearing the news and then having two hours before I have to get on stage. And that was shot. And that was really the only show where I had a lot of anxiety. And it probably was because Deep down, I didn't want to play the show. I wanted to just go crawl in my bunk and like deal with it, you know. But look, I bounced back quickly again because of my support system on tour. I let everybody know what was going on. Everybody was very, very supportive. Um, and with the guys in periphery and Mira, our driver, having been through this before, they knew how to be there for me, and it was really good. It was really comforting. Um, but I just did my best. And you know what's funny? Again, like Bill, I keep talking about this Bill guy, but um, Bill, is the he was the merch guy for the contortionist, and he's a huge animal lover. His family actually rescues dogs. They have a farm, and at any given time, I think he always said to me, they would have four dogs and two cats at any given time. I think that's the, the number. But um, when he heard what happened, like he made a point to come find me and he's a big dude. He's like my height, but he's just big. He's like 260. And he just fucking grabbed me and just squeezed me and hugged me and was like crying. And it was it was like one of those moments where like I lost it, he lost it, but he was like, "Man, I'm so sorry. Like I'm here for you." And it was it was really it was really meaningful because I I needed that. You know, I needed to just have somebody who understood what was going on cuz the guys in my band like Jake gets it. Jake really gets it. Jake has a dog that he loves more than anything in this world, and we talk about it all the time. His dog is very young, but there's not a day that goes by where he has said to me that he doesn't think about the day that his dog's not there anymore. You know, It reminds me of that Louis C.K. joke. I don't know if you guys have seen the stand-up where Louis talking about how getting a dog is the most sweet and amazing and, and, and great and miserable, terrible heart-wrenching, horrendous thing you could ever do. I feel like he could talk... I, I often hear him talk about that in, like, his own life. Yeah. He's like, um, you know, oh, it's great, but I'm fat and bald and out of shape and losing it. I'm going to die one day. <laughs> I mean, he's great. He shits on himself. True, but, he's, but honestly, he's right. I mean, getting a puppy or, or rescuing a dog is a, it's a, an amazing thing, but it's a curse, too, because most pets if we are lucky as humans, are going to pass away before we do. 
And you know what? That's it's actually luckier for the pets too, because if a pet bonds with one person and then that person dies, and God forbid there's no one else to take care of the pet, think about the trauma that that animal is going to go through. Getting yeah, separation anxiety and not knowing the person. Yeah, yeah. It, it, maybe it goes to um, a shelter. A shelter. Right. Maybe it gets put down. Maybe it goes to a family that's abusive. Maybe it's neglected and left alone. I mean, it's it's rough. So, but this is this is not a uh, a PSA to not adopt. Puppies. No, I, I'm going to get another dog at some point, absolutely. I know my dad already wants to get another dog. There's no choice for me. I I need that in my life. But it's just a very, very hard reality that usually when you have a pet that becomes your child, they're going to go before you do. And you have to know that going into it. You just have to, you have to go through it a couple times to be able to go through it again. I don't ever want to go through it again, but I'm going to. I have a dog that's 12 years old now, and it's going to be terrible, but I know it's going to happen. And I know when I get another dog, I know it's going to happen. And what am I going to do? I mean, it's life. It's a risk you take. It's, it's, it's worth it, I guess. Justin and I can relate in a sense, but we didn't have even close to the emotional relationship you've had with your pets um, but when Justin and I were playing in a band about 10 years ago, we had a family cat, and I remember uh, we were playing at Phoenix, and you may not even remember this, Justin. I don't. Um, and Courtney or? Courtney, yeah. And we found out that day or that night that uh, she had a tumor, and she was, you know, had maybe a week or so left. And so we find this out, and then we have to go perform. So I remember... We both were really upset, um, but it helped, like you said, with Bill, you felt like someone understood and was able to empathize with you. So I remember Justin and I just hugging outside before we had to go load and everything on stage and perform. And at least for me, I was really upset about it. And it, I didn't feel like performing because when you're performing, you're in service of an audience and that wasn't what I was interested in doing. I felt like I would have rather just spent time either alone or just with a couple people mm -hmm. instead of a couple hundred people. And But to be able to at least embrace Justin, someone who had the equal uh, relationship that I had with the cat, um, at least it felt like this person, Justin, understood, was actually going through the same thing. And not only that, he was going to be on stage with me. And I remember that really helped me a lot to have that support. That's the hardest part. And I, I don't, I'm not by any means upset with my bandmates or anything like that. They just don't, they haven't been through that specifically in that way. So going on stage that night for them was just par for the course. Um, and for me, it was, it was a lot different than, than what they were feeling, you know? And uh, I think it's also very different that your relationship with your pets, and you're one of the best animal parents I can think of because you still differentiate the idea that they're not a kid, a child, it's not a human being, it's still your pet, but you give them the really the best life you can think of from the experiences and the food and the time that you spend with them and everything else, and that's great. To Jordan's point, unfortunately, I have zero recollection of this happening. But what I do remember is that she had bladder cancer, I believe, or at least there was a mass that was close up to her bladder. 
She slept in my bed. This was Courtney the cat. And I woke up, and she had, she had no control of her bladder, I guess, anymore. And she peed everywhere in the bed. And I don't think I had. I don't think I really had the best relationship with the cat, but it's because Courtney wasn't very loving. She was the. I mean, the like antithesis of of like a scaredy or like a fraidy cat kind of thing. She's just the cat would run away from everybody. It was hard to find the love with Courtney a lot of times. I did though, but you had to let her come to you. Well, I, but I, then I think I had a more emotional relationship with the cat. I think you did too. What you were going through when we got the cat and everything else was going on in your life, I think you 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 needed that in your life in some sense. And for me, it was just we had this great pet. It was awesome. And I remember I went with our mom to the vet, and we had her in a cage in the crate. And you show up. And there was this little kid, and obviously the, the kid has no idea. And the kid is like trying to tap on the cage and do all this stuff, and I'm like losing it. Like, I'm gonna rip your freaking head off, kid. You better stop tapping on this cage. This cat is sick. We're here to, to put the cat down. You're fucking messing with the cage. I'm gonna like throw you outside in a second. And I couldn't take it. I just got up and I just, I just, and, and I was always, and I'm still am a pretty emotional person. I'm very connected with my emotions. I can feel a, a very wide array of emotion, a, a really good spectrum. And it was like, I felt it and I'm sensitive and whatever it was, I, I just, I opened those doors and just bawled because I was like, this is it. And I don't even think that it was at the time because I, I, I don't even remember being that old because that would have been when we were like, you're Eight, probably 18, 18 17, 19, 18. something like that. Yeah, maybe 17. I felt like I was younger then. I was thinking, like, we were saying we were, like, 20, 21 playing the shows. But I think it was, like, probably 17. I was young. And this was, like, the first real pet that I remember losing. I don't remember having the greatest relationship with Courtney, but I just remember that how sad the moment was and passing the cat over to the to the techs or the vets or whoever it was. And I just lost it. I just went outside. And I think maybe mom embraced me or something like that, which I needed, but... It was tough, and, but I feel like that was the closure and that was the the expression that I needed to get out, and that was it. And so, and I think that was it. I feel like I dealt with it there. And you pick out, we picked out like a, a like a headstone thing for like the cats or the the pet cemetery and all that stuff, and I moved on. And it was really tough. And I actually I sometimes think about it that Jordan and I in our family we have these two dogs, little super cute brother and sister. And to our mom, it's like the second coming of Jordan and I. They are they're kids. You try to tell her they're dogs. She says no, they're kids. Uh, she'll she'll probably listen to this and then come to us. But it's like I think of this and and I start to think, you know, okay, how long do the small dogs live? They're going to be seven this year, or eight, right? And I can only imagine what this family, especially what mom, is going to go through. I'll be gutted. I know that for sure. So will I. I, you know, I couldn't imagine Bella, the girl, not coming up and like, you know, hitting you with her paw, trying to like, so you give her attention and whatever else. And Blake just whining and crying for whatever he wants. But all of us will be gutted. Mm-hmm. Mom is going to be eighteen levels of Matt, whatever Matt felt, you know. And Matt is the best animal parent I can think of. And mom is on a different level because she thinks they're, they're humans. It's going to be out of control. And I don't look forward to that day, obviously, but I know it's inevitable. 
We've had this discussion before in a previous podcast, though, just about death. And I, I think the greatest takeaway from this whole conversation is that, yes, it is inevitable. It is a part of life. There wouldn't be life without death. So, yeah, it's going to happen. We'll let that be a motivator to, uh, to make you get the most value and appreciation and gratitude and experience with that pet while they are alive. That's what it's all about. Absolutely. I don't know how to say this without coming off insensitive, but I feel like a lot of times, at least in my experience, and I'll, I'll, I will only speak to the experience that I just went through where, we're, you know, like we're talking about with losing my dad's dog, Gia. Yes, it was very sad to lose her. However, her quality of life was gone and it was fading for a while. And in that way, I'm glad because there's relief for her. The thing, though, that I wanted to say that may come off as insensitive is what upsets me and what still is upsetting me is the way that my dad decides to talk about the death and how he compares or and how he discusses Charlie and says things like, well, now Gia and Charlie are together and they're, they're running in the fields of heaven and it's just, it's bullshit. I just, I can't deal with that and I'm sorry it's just like I don't want to think about that because you know what I don't I don't that's not real like yes it's very nice to have this mental picture and this comforting feeling of they both are gone they've both been through something that I haven't and you know what maybe their energies somehow are they've gone to the a good place and maybe they're maybe that's together I don't know I mean but it's like I, I don't know. I don't want to sound like a dick. And, I, and and out of everybody, I should be the one that like, you know, looks at these scenarios and wants to believe those things. And you know what? Maybe somewhere deep down, I want to believe that that is the case, but I'm also too realistic to know that, that that's not the case. It's just, it's not comforting that they're quote unquote together in the sky, riding the clouds, looking down on me and eating all the rub, treats and rubbing off on all the other animals that I encounter and, you know, I know there's, like, books out there, um, you know, that, that it, whether it's, I don't know if it's Marley and Me or if, like, I, there's another oh, one. Man, I it. woke up today, my TV was on, Marley and Me was on. There's another one, there's another book out there about a, a dog that dies and comes back to the owner later in life through another dog. And it's like, yeah, you know what, that could be cool. Maybe one day I'll get a dog that absolutely reminds me of Charlie. But maybe, maybe I'll, but, but it's, I don't know. Then we open up a whole conversation about faith and how faith yeah. is used to to help people deal with trauma. And so maybe for your dad, having these ideas is what's allowing him to move on day-to-day emotionally. Now, I understand that he's involving Charlie, which is then going to trigger you and the way that you have internally dealt with that. And maybe what he's sharing is kind of triggering you and being like, no, that doesn't feel good. Well, right, and that's the thing. It, it, and that's he should fine. keep Look, it to he himself. Can, he, well, he can rationalize it however he wants, and if he needs to vent to me, he can vent to me. But I say this to him, too. It's like, do me a favor. Don't say that kind of stuff. Because not only does it... It paints this mental picture, right? If I said to you that your parents' dogs, one passed away, then the other passed away, and now they're together running through a oh, field. Oh, man, I can't imagine you visualize one that, the, uh, right? Yeah. Don't you visualize that? You can see it. 
Mm-hmm. I do, and I can understand how it triggers something in you, but I think that, that in my head, and I know my mom will have these thoughts because she, in her own way, is more religious. She believes, she wants to believe, and she wants to use a tool, she wants to use her faith to say, this is how you explain the inexplicable. And for me, especially now that I'm back in school doing science, and someone who's more identifies with science... I have a very hard time believing things that you can't explain. If it's not tangible, if it's inexplicable, then it's hard for me to really get behind that stuff. And this is a way bigger topic that we could get into for 100 episodes. But I, I would maybe find comfort and solace in the idea that, that you go somewhere, there is an afterlife, but... I don't really believe that. So I'm not going to sit there and try to sugarcoat the idea that, oh, when they're gone, then the, the oh, they're, they're in heaven running around eating all the puppy treats and getting peanut butter all day long and rolling around and having fun with other dogs, whatever else. Not, not only do I not believe but it, in that. But I guess I have to ask, is your dad religious? No, not He's at all. Not, not at all. Well, but, 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 does he, but does he still, does he use that vehicle or that idea as an idea of him saying, like, does he believe that his his parents or his friends or whoever's passed away in his life are in a better place now? They're in heaven somewhere. I don't think so. No, he's he, so and, it's just and, and the out dogs. of all and out of all people, he's the most. He should be, and in some ways, is the most realistic about death. He was in Vietnam. He watched people get their heads blown off right next to him. He tells me, he even said to me, he's like, "I'm okay. I can deal with death pretty well because I've seen so much of it hands on." Right. And I get that. But at the same time, he's also, you know, saying things like that, like like Charlie and G are together now, and it's like, Dad, stop! Like it, it's not good. It's it it doesn't help. It, at least not me. For him, it and does. Though, it's thing. his coping mechanism. I don't. I have dreams about Charlie, and the, it's always the same kind of dream where I'm like looking for him, and I see him, and he's there, but. Maybe I only pet him once or twice, or I get to hug him really briefly, then I can't find him again, and I got to look for him. Like, that that's awful. Like, I hate those dreams. It makes me want to cry talking about it. And when I have them, I wake up, and I feel awful, like, all day, because that's all that's on my mind. And it's not, it's not Charlie that makes me feel bad. It's that I had a dream that I couldn't find him, that I'm, mm. that I'm looking for him, that my subconscious is missing that. That sucks. I don't... and and. I don't think dwelling on that is going to do anything, and I don't think it's even part of the grieving process. I think it's natural to have those dreams, and I'm, I'm going to have them, and I have to deal with them, but I also don't want to dwell on it. It's why I don't want my dad to paint these mental pictures that are not real. So I think more practically, then it's just a, an issue of you communicating that with him, and hopefully he understands your point of view and hopefully you can have understanding of his point of view as well. But as long as you communicate your needs with respect to it, and that's respected by him, then I think all should be good. With faith and things like this, as Justin said, you can't explain it, so we all have to internally come up with something that feels cohesive enough to get through these traumatic experiences. And I think we can do our best to respect others in their unique ways of doing that. Absolutely. I don't have to agree with it, but however you want to deal with your shit, deal with your shit. That's fine. With my dad, 
I very clearly communicate with him. He's aware. But my dad is an interesting dude. It's funny. You know, I, I said to him one time, I tried to actually set this up. I tried to get Jeff Holcomb to film and interview my dad because my dad has some of the craziest life stories and stories from the war that I've ever heard anybody tell. And they're really entertaining um, and they're really intense, but he like won't. Should we, should we try it. to interview him for the podcast? I would love to, but I don't think he would talk about this stuff. You know, he well, always maybe says, he doesn't want to. Right. It's not that he doesn't want to. I think that it's... I think he does want to. I know he wants to because he likes to tell everybody about it. You know, people at the grocery store know everything about him. And when I, wa- when I walked into Gourmet again the other day, the girl behind the counter served me what I I ordered a chicken salad sandwich that I posted about. It was fucking flavor country for sure with bacon. But <laughs> as I'm checking out, I hear her go, hold up, that's him? <laughs> and I'm like, oh, God, she's talking about me. And I hear the other woman go, yeah, that's Richie's son. <laughs> and, of course, my dad goes in and, like, talks about me and, which is, you know, it's cute and it's nice. But he also talks about himself. And I just tried to give him a platform. I was like, Dad, instead of just telling your stories to everybody you encounter personally, why don't you tell your story on camera and we'll put it out, we'll make a documentary, or you could do it on this podcast, for example. I don't think he would do it. Partially because he's going to go and he's going to say, oh, some of it's classified still. <laughs> it's like, no, it's not. Shut up. Although it you might can thank be. WikiLeaks, you could probably go on and read. Maybe it is. My, I mean, my dad was special forces. Um, he was a Green Beret. He's a crazy motherfucker. He was, uh, he was in, you know, special forces airborne. He was, he was a nutty dude. Um, Did those ladies know you because you were the tall guy with the V-neck ordering chicken salad? I guess they don't even know why I'm quote unquote famous. But like, she comes up to me. She's like. Can I take a picture with you? I was like, why do you want to take a picture with me? She's like, chocolate croissants. She's like, because you're famous. And I was like, no, nah, I'm not famous at all. She's like, yes, you are. And I didn't want to grill her, but I wanted to be like, why am I famous? She, she knows enough from my dad to be like, oh, you're the drummer. Right. But I want to be like, your dad's going around town just like passing out your 8x10s. He does. You have an 8x10? Figuratively. Okay. That's what he does. Yeah, I mean, he's been doing that for years. It, there was one time when he, like, tried to come to my defense online about something. Like, there was a bunch of trolls, and he, like, goes online and starts, like, trying to fight my battles. And I actually had to straight up say to him, like, Please stop. Do like, don't do that. What's up? Tyson, why don't you go lay down? Go ahead. Come on. Come up here. Uh, he just wants to sit next to me and comfort me since he knows what we're talking about. See, that's the crazy dog owner shit. Like, oh, my dog knows what I'm talking about right now. And it's funny, like, I don't know if your mom does that, but, like, all, I'm sure he hears all his name. pet owners like to project and also, uh, like, imagine what their dogs are thinking. When she leaves, she keeps Bravo TV on for them because that's their choice <laughs> of TV. Right, exactly. She makes sure that dad is going to be home soon. Someone's got to feed them. They can't walk themselves. You, I'm you a, about, I know, you've talked about this before. Like, well, if I left... If I left Tyson home by himself, he can't do all of these things. I need to be there. I need to be a good parent, et cetera. She takes it to a different level. You still respect that he's a dog. 
Well, I'm also kind of crazy like that, too, if I'm being completely honest. Like, when I used to leave him and Charlie at home at my old place, we would turn on HBO Family. <laughs> because <laughs> so this is a real thing. Hold it's on, not but just but our no, mom. No, no. Here's bravo. why. Here, here's why. They because, like drama. Because on HBO Family, you're not going to get a bunch of loud gunshots. You're not going to really get like intense, scary music, commercials. things like that. Commercials. Right. So it was usually like <laughs> no commercials. Yeah, no commercials. <laughs> but no, for real. Charlie <laughs> used to watch TV. I'm not. I'm not even kidding. I have video of it. Charlie used. What to was his favorite? He just liked watching the movement of, what of he, the screen. He what would he, sit there and just like stare at the TV, and he, his head would turn. And when there was animals that like on in shows that would bark or whatever, he'd be like, "Would he bark know? back?" Yeah, sometimes he would. Carly and I, we can't leave the TV on for for uh, Samson. Samson, Samson man, Debbie boy will bark at the TV and then run behind the TV, thinking the dogs are actually there. He's he doesn't get it. Totally doesn't get it. And then he'll start jumping the TV. He'll lose his mind. I mean, yeah, not good. So you can't leave it over. He just needs to just go lay down and chill. You know Arthur is in its 20th season? I didn't know that. That's kind of cool, though. I was watching for a few minutes today. Where were you watching it? Upstairs. Like, it's on MPT? Like, yeah. public television? PBS, yeah. PBS. Spe- speaking of, of shows like that, I don't know if you guys know this, but um, and I don't really know the details. I haven't looked into it, but... I heard that the guy who created and acts as Barney did an AMA. Oh, wow. And got, like, torn apart just because he just doesn't know how to deal with trolls online. Ooh. And apparently it's, it's, it's on Reddit. You can find the thread. Um, he but could was, have referenced our, our podcast. Did you ever get into Barney? No, I didn't. But I imagine it was. it's a really good show for a lot of kids. I mean, I'm sure it teaches good... Morals. It's like, I look. I grew up to, with Mister Rogers, which, by the way, I watched um, this like goal cast video the other day of him. Did you see that? Do you know what I'm talking about? I no. saw that. No. Um, he's in court and he's arguing to keep funding for the. I think it was uh, public television. Yeah, I did see that. And it's pretty amazing his ability to very honestly present his case and ends up right then and there like getting the funding for what they needed and. It was very honest. It was like, look, kids need to learn how to be better people. And through my show, we're doing that. You know, that's that's the focus. Do you need help? Do you need me to tighten this for you? I was just messing you? around with it. Okay. Je- Jeff Blake, who's a, good, a really good friend of mine um, and ours, he, he would always talk about Mr. Rogers. And then I remember he he felt like he finally hit his stride and his peak as being – Mr. Rogers, when he got he got another pair of shoes, his coaching shoes, and just like Mr. Rogers, he would walk in the gym, he would sit down, he would take off his one pair of shoes, and he'd switch them to the new shoes. You remember that Mr. Rogers getting dressed, mm-hmm. right? He would do like the Mr. Rogers routine. He'd get dressed for it, and then he's like ready to do his work. Mm-hmm. And I remember he identified so hard with that; he loved it. Mr. Rogers was too smart for me. I thought it was kind of nerdy as a kid. It was. I was more interested in like. Papa Shango making the ultimate warrior throw up. <laughs> that was scary. I remember going in the room that is directly next to where we're doing this podcast. And we would watch, be like Saturday mornings or Sunday mornings, we would watch Barney for a minute and then go right to wrestling. And that was, I think, the, I think that's when I, maybe it wasn't even, maybe it wasn't here, maybe it was the old house because maybe we were like five years old. I was five, maybe four years old. 
But I remember going right from that to wrestling and just wrestling just dominated. It was like Barney was there. Well, the pre-show. It was the pre-show. Yeah. Got yeah. a pre-game. Right. With some Barney. Is that where pre-gaming comes from? I think pre-gaming is just... Saturday morning Barney to wrestling? That's where it came from. Okay. Fair enough. Because... Uh, I don't even want to go there. All right, so hey, speaking of spe- speaking of, let me see Barney, how you transition out of this. <laughs> speaking of Barney, it's got to be something purple. Hold on. Speaking of Barney, there are some other names that are written down here in our notes. Not Barney, but Miko, the M's, Mark, the M's, Mike, yeah, and then some people that have been paying attention this whole uh, episode that have some questions or that you've had some conversation with. So. I figured it might be a good time to switch from pre-gaming to post-gaming to post-gaming and talking about whatever some of our listeners were curious about so we can address their questions. Okay, sounds good. All right, Jordan, take it away. Okay, and we'll be br- I mean we're already an hour and a half into this. Um so just a couple people that I wanted to acknowledge that have been paying attention to us over the past 2 months. Um Miko from Finland, Mark from Texas, and Mike from Canada. Uh, all three of these guys reached out to me um, in, in a very cordial way and basically said, hey, I'm interested as a drummer in what you do, and I'm interested in finding ways to help others through my passion and talent in drumming. Um, both Miko and Mike, I video chatted with them uh, for a little bit and helped kind of give them uh, my backstory and some direction for what they could possibly do f- on their own. Um, but I, I was sure to communicate with them. The reason why I'm taking the time to do this with you is because I really respect the fact that you were curious and you had some sort of desire and you actually took action. And it takes balls to, they don't know me. And, and they took the time um, in a respectful way to reach out and ask for something. And I really respect that. And with from the earlier in the podcast, we're talking about this opportunity that I have coming up and that I'm kind of in the middle of now. I related to it because two weeks ago, I pretty much did the same thing. I identified there's something that I really want to do. And even though I was kind of scared about it, um, I made the phone call and I reached out and expressed that this is something I'm interested in doing. Um, so I just wanted to acknowledge uh those three guys, and I think we all can learn a lot from that um, because it's much easier to come up with excuses uh, to not do something like that. Uh, Jordan's not going to care. Um, he may judge me, whatever it may he be. He won't respond. Yeah, he, he not respond. Maybe I really don't want it, and then I'd be wasting his time. Um, I really respected the fact that they were willing to do that, and they approached me in a respectful way. There's other people that will approach me and it's not done in in a respectful way. And then either I'll tell them that's how it is or I'll just ignore it. Um, But I just really wanted to acknowledge them. And for me, it was nice. Um, It affirmed the exercise that if you share with the world, uh, things will come back to you. So that was really nice. Um, You said there's some people in the group now. That have reached Can out? I make a point to this similar to yours? I didn't even think about this, and I think that's awesome. I had um, it's it's I mean it's awesome how quickly people can see the value that's being added here, and then it comes back, and someone takes the initiative, they ask the question. Um, 
a dude who's in high school. I think he's in 10th grade. I'm blanking on his name. Hit me up through, um, through Facebook and just asked me, he said, for my class, I am supposed to come up with an, an exercise plan that has to do with these two things. And, and I was so pumped to super get into it and just like really give him a great protocol of what he could use. And I was interested in the feedback his professor would give on the stuff. And I said, make sure you tell me what kind of feedback we get. And he asked me, which I need to go now respond to, I'll remember tonight to, um, you know, him telling me his age and his activity level and like how much is too much when it comes to fitness or anything else. And, and it was really nice that he reached out. I also thought it was cool that for the new people that we're, we're going to address in a second of the people that are joining the group, the Facebook group, I reached out to a guy who I identified with in the group, this dude, Zach Henderson, who um, is a kettlebell coach, strength and conditioning coach. He's awesome. We ended up, we, we played tag a bit. My schedule was pretty hectic, but we finally found time. And we went hard for like two, three hours last night on FaceTime, goofing off, talking. We started with, um, with fitness-related things. I learned about his, actual, I asked about his story um, and what got him from where he was to what he's doing currently. And then we, we riffed for a pretty long time joking about um, where rock and roll came from and his love for ACDC and all these other great things. And it was great. And, um, and the other thing that I love about the podcast stuff that, that's worked really well is even through Instagram, which I probably wouldn't have thought would be such a cool vehicle or tool for people to use to connect, but I've had people hit me up about coaching through it, which is something that I look at Matt because Matt will do his, um, he'll do some coaching and he'll do drum lessons and stuff when he's home remotely. And that's something that I look, I looked at as something that I knew I wanted to get into and I dabbled in a little bit, but I wanted to get more into it. And it, through this platform, was able to just kind of come across that people were going to just reach out like you, you know, it, it's awesome. So yeah, super cool. And now the people. So, I mean, there, there aren't even that many questions. I just want to acknowledge some people who have been paying attention this whole time. Um, so there's a gentleman here named Aaron Woodhouse who's been just contributing a lot. And I think if you guys get a chance, you should go through and read some of the comments. Cause Aaron's the one who went on tour. Aaron's the one who went. Aaron. Yeah. Yeah, man. How was that tour? You yeah. Find a place to sleep, Aaron. Keep updating. We need, we need some like video footage of the tour. Um, but Sam Pollock is here and you know, I, Sam lost, uh, lost a dog recently too and I know it was tough for him and I know the story that I've told has been helpful but yeah I mean it's I don't know it's just nice to see that that there's a lot of engagement and there's a lot of people that are interested in what we're talking about and I really appreciate the listeners so far and anybody who's tuned in this whole time um is that all the typing you've been doing uh no, the typing that I was doing before was I was sharing the live feed on a bunch of different pages. So uh. I, like I shared it from the periphery page. I shared it from a bunch of different things. So I was trying to just make posts to explain what was going on. I thought you were transcribing what we were saying. No, no, no. Everybody can hear us that's watching and see us because this is uh, on video live. Hi, guys. <laughs> but no, I, look, I'm just very appreciative so far of the 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 listeners and the viewers um the feedback has been great pretty much every day i get someone writing me to let me know that um the podcast is important in fact i wanted to i hope it's okay to share this but i'm gonna do it anyway so um a, a student of mine um just wrote me and out of respect i don't i won't say his name but if he's listening he knows who he is he just wrote me this 
He said, I just finished listening to the latest podcast, which is episode eight. And I have to thank you for the discussion on PTS and not labeling it as a disease. I've been struggling with it for a few years after being a paramedic for 20. Uh, and I had a huge falling out with my uh, family members over this because they wanted to label me as broken and try to fix me in their way. So to hear someone else to say that it, to say how we said it truly meant a lot. And I really appreciate this kind of feedback because it, again, it affirms, it reaffirms why we're doing this and which we've talked about a lot. If we can somehow provide value or help even one person through this process, then it's worth doing. And we don't know that it helps people unless you tell us. So we all, the three of us are open to receiving praise, constructive criticism, or even hearing stories um, about the topics that we discuss and how it resonates with, with you, you know, and the listener. So it's just, I don't know, I just really appreciate getting things like that because it, it does mean something to me and it means, I'm glad that it means a lot to the listeners, you know? Yeah, don't hesitate. If there's anyone listening to this who, who's been following or just started following, if anything, if any, anything that any of us have said resonates with you, you can message us privately on, on Facebook. It's pretty easy. I think you can probably drop a message through the Chocolate Croissants page. Yeah, um, if you join the group even, like if you're not in the group yet, join the group and, and there's a ton of good discussion there. It's uh it's Facebook.com slash group slash chocolate croissants. It's there's a lot of great discussion there. And all of the people that you guys are talking about and the interactions you've had have come from the group. So the part, yeah. there I mean it's I didn't know that you guys were doing that, and it's really nice to hear that. Yeah. That, that you guys have been interacting with people that have been listeners and I've been teaching online for a while, interacting with students and fans. So I, I, and I love it because I do get to hear real feedback, real stories. So I'm glad you guys are getting that too. Cause it, it, again, it, it, it reaffirms and it also sort of, um, it reinforces that this is a good thing to do, especially if it helps people. If we were just fucking off, and talking about stupid shit, then it probably wouldn't really add value to people, and none of us would want to do it. So When we say we're trying to build a community, we actually mean that. So a community of people that engages with each other. And we've even seen uh, recently in the Facebook group that uh, some other people have taken more of a leadership role uh, within the community, which is incredible. Uh, the three of us may uh, kind of have the microphones, uh, but we don't always have to necessarily lead um, all the conversations or the directions of what uh, this community wants to be um, or grow into. Uh, with all that said, um, we know that there's been a lot of people who have shared incredible, uh, thoughtful feedback in the group, um, but it's in our nature, uh, it, with everything that, in, that we do, where we want to grow this thing, we want to share it with more people, and I'm sure as many of you know, one of the best things uh, that can be done for us to help build awareness is to uh, be rated and reviewed in iTunes. Mm -hmm. um, so maybe if you've posted something publicly in the Facebook group, if you want to copy and paste or just write something else um, as an iTunes review, we'd really appreciate that. Um, if you haven't and you're just listening to this for the first time and you find value in it or not, we, uh, we'd appreciate you. Whatever honest feedback you'd like to provide publicly, if you did that on iTunes as a review and also rated it, um, that helps us, and we'd really appreciate it. 
And to add to that, share it with your friends. If if you if you know people that you think any of this will resonate with them and you think they should listen to it and check it out and then you guys can have conversations about it or just have them check it out for whatever it's worth, please share it with your friends cuz we we only have so many people that we can share it to and in trying to build the community, we're looking for those other leaders in the group to do it. I mean, it's it's great that we all might get super busy and you might only be able to read over something that someone posts and like it, but it's it's super cool when we see other people step up and even the way that we share our own stories, they're typing out and sharing their own story. We with see others. it too. It's great. Like we it's may not always great. be able to respond. We may not always but be able to... But we see everything to, for to, sure. Yeah, to heavily engage. But yeah, we see everything and, I, and we get the feedback from people. We, it's been great actually. We've gotten a lot of constructive criticism about... Like the technical aspects of it, the yep. audio, the panning, different things like that, that is really important for us to to know because we want to make the best podcast for the listener. So the panning became a thing because a good amount of people really, really appreciate it and liked it. And then equally uh, people really did not like it. But yeah. people were having technical issues with it was the problem. But we took that feedback to heart. Jordan and I went to lunch with one of our favorite people, um, Matt, and we sat down with another Matt, Matt, who's awesome, who recorded and mixed and engineered and mastered a lot of records that we did, and we have the utmost faith in that dude because he is the man when it comes to this stuff and in so many other aspects of life, but he's great. And we had him do these really thorough mixes in GarageBand, which is what we're using to record for people that are into this technical audio stuff. We He pulled it into logic and he mixed it and he was i mean he went to the nth degree and hopefully episode eight is a step up even though we recorded it the way that we did five six and seven and it was mixed that same way but then he remixed it for us we think we're getting a better mix now for episode nine and i i squashed the pan back from from being like almost 50 percent to being maybe like 10 or 15% for Jordan and I because we sit, we flank, Matt Matt is in the center. I sit on the right, Jordan's on the left, so I try to pan our voices so it would be a little more discernible that you would know who's who when we speak. But please, again, if this is something you're into or just something that you have a thought on, share it with us because we, Jordan always goes back and listens to the entire thing. I don't, I don't know. I don't always go back and listen to these. I listen, I listen to p- pits and pieces. Parts. I think the biggest point here is that, yes, this is the f- it's our podcast in the sense that we are presenting, we're talking, we're the voices of it, but I would like this to be something that the people that are part of it now and the people that grow from here, uh, that they consider it to be like their podcast because right. I want to discuss real topics that people deal with every single day whether it's inspiring or sad, and I want it to be real shit. That's why we are encouraging questions. That's why we are encur- encouraging feedback. And if you're listening um, to this on the podcast version, uh, just so you know, so yeah, it may come out Monday morning. Uh, right now, in reality, our reality, it is Wednesday evening, and we are streaming this live in the Facebook group. Uh, so if you do want to find us and join the Facebook group, then whenever we end up recording this audio, you can actually follow live. This is why Matt was able to engage tonight uh, with some of the people and get that feedback. Yeah. Why were you smiling? You were smiling at me as I was saying that before. Oh, because I'm sitting here thinking about, I showed you that dude earlier, the Powered by Ice Cream. Oh, yeah. Super funny guy. And he's got this whole, like, he always, he 
oftentimes uh, in the mixture of whatever he's reviewing, he'll get a bunch of lemon things and the fans because it's like a whole community. These people are sending in things for him to try. It's great. And he'll do this whole, like, Team Lemon stand up. And I'm sitting there thinking, like, you know, Team Chocolate Croissant or some kind of, like, rally call call to action. Yeah, what's, you know, what's, like, what's, this, what's the Chocolate Croissant's group slash listener, like, secret word or secret handshake? It's almost like I want us to have, like, a, like a rally cry of, like, like Chocolate Croissants. Well, of, look, hey, so, you know, hey, if somebody in the group wants to create, like, a poll, maybe we can do it. Or if there's somebody who cares enough, let's create a poll and let's figure out... We need a what's rally. The, what's, the, what's the secret word or what's the rally, you know? What's, what are we going to... We gonna... need a rally and an inside joke. So when the Chocolate Croissanters... Pa- the Chocolate Croissanters, when they pass each other on the streets... And you're just walking down, and you eye that guy, especially when you're wearing the shirts. Wait a minute. And they're just like, Bruce hmm, Pritchard. <laughs> Chocolate croissant tour. Chocolate croissant tour. Yeah, you're yes. very sophisticated you're very listener sophisticated. of the podcast, and you're in this secret group. You're not just a chocolate croissanter. You're a chocolate croissant tour. Yeah, E-U-R. Right? It's like a connoisseur, like an I entrepreneur. It. I know. You know it's, it's, yeah, it's but chocolate croissant It really makes Do it the other much version. more French. Someone... Though, when you went live on Instagram, was like, thank you for having a name that wasn't European or like yeah, hard to Mikey, pronounce. Mikey Mignona, one of my best friends. <laughs> right, it's great. Yeah, he's, he's just hey, making fun of me. Chocolate that's croissants. Hey. Yeah. Um, yeah, we need that. And I need to put this out there as well, because I know there are some really smart, technical, there's musicians, there's all these great people out there. My, my favorite podcast, uh, The MMA Hour, there is... I, I guess he's a producer. He's in the back. New York Rick, this other character. He's, he has this new segment where they'll throw it to him and he'll do Rick's picks. And it's all these great things that happen in MMA. He does like 12 different things that happened. And this dude who, who has, I think has his own podcast, who is big in this world and has all the wherewithal to do this stuff, did the most amazing introduction to it, you know, live from the downtown Manhattan studios. And uh, boom, and then it's like, Rick's picks. And it goes into like this whole game show, song and dance. We could use some theme music. If anybody is itching to, to try, please make a little chocolate croissants theme music. Absolutely. I told one of my students to do it. and I'm I was so, there. I'm, I know. Yeah, you I, were there. I was there. He's dropping yeah. the ball. Hey, David Zagardo. What, Get it together, buddy. Where's our, where's, our, where's our theme music? We told him we needed music for these Instagram workouts that we post. All right. Jordan's getting bored over there. I want to go home. Jordan wants to go to bed. <laughs> this is like the it conversation. Is it out yet? No. September. September. I know. I'm just making sure right. you're still on the ball. Chocolate Thank croissant tourist. Thank you for listening. Thank you very much to everybody. Um, we'll see you or speak to you or hear from you hopefully sooner the next Monday. But until then. I'm ready for Jordan to do it. Um, <laughs> sign out with that for no, us. No, uh, please. We appreciate you guys listening. Uh, we do. Especially these, these come out Monday morning, the attention, and we've had the feedback. Uh, multiple people say that it, they look forward to it on Monday mornings because it helps set the tone for their week. That is one of our intentions for this podcast. So if you're listening to this on Monday morning, good for you. We appreciate it. We hope you have a great productive week. And mm, Bruce Pritchard. Make Monday no, it's, your bitch. It, no, it, it, bye I'm, bye. I'm cutting that. Bye-bye. <laughs>